Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Untangled, the compliance podcast that untangles tangly topics, and we have another tangly one to talk through today. Imagine it's Friday afternoon. It actually is for us. But you're finishing your final email, and you can almost smell the weekend, but wait, what's this? An alert has just dropped like a grenade into your inbox. It's a confidential whistleblowing report. You're equal parts thrilled and terrified. Thrilled that someone actually listened to your speak-up training and knew how to use the system. Terrified because you don't have a clue what to do next. How do you plan for an investigation? Well, fear ye not, as we are joined today by our stellar crew of Andre, Jim and Stephanie, who are here to help. So, team, what are your top tips for making sure that an investigation runs smoothly? So I might jump in with this one. Um, And... This top tip is probably a little bit of pre-work that you would hopefully have done before the grenade lands in your inbox. Um, And that is that you should know your key stakeholders. Be sure to build good relationships with them because it often is a Friday afternoon and nobody wants that phone call from you to say, we're going to have to do something. It's always a Friday afternoon. (laughs) It's always a Friday afternoon. So build good relationships with them. Make sure that your investigations, um, SOP if you have one, um, includes a, a racy or clearly sets out who's going to do what so that you don't have to rush around on that Friday afternoon trying to think, right, what do we do next? Um, and it may sound basic, but getting the basics right in the early stages will certainly help things run smoothly. I would also say on, on that point, if you work in a large organization where you have a, a dedicated investigation team and assuming there are parts of the week when they are not busy, uh, do some practice and role-playing, right? Because you need to understand how you will be dealing with different types of complaints or different topics that can be raised in those investigation reports. So effectively, you can create investigation plans for typical things, either based on the experience what you have seen in the organization or what, what you would expect to see in your industry. So by the time the report comes in, you can actually classify it and have a, a draft plan in place much quicker than trying to scramble through your thoughts uh, on a Friday afternoon. Absolutely. And I think to add to that, you can have things like like checklists, simple checklists. What are the things, for example, that you do in, you know, immediately that you read the report? Maybe there are two or three key steps that you have to follow straight away. What happens, you know, within the first day, within the first week? Because there may be you know, things that are important, but you can't do immediately. But you want to make sure that they don't fall off the radar because you got caught up in the, in the detail of what you were doing. And I think also to Jim's point about, you know, having some planning in place beforehand. Um, one of the things that I think is really worth doing is making sure that you have your resources mapped out for your investigation. So that might be, you know, let's say you're, you know, you've got a wide geographical spread. Who have we got that can do things in certain locations for language reasons or, or whatever it happens to be? Because you don't necessarily want to have to be thinking about that again in the moment. There are things like visas and et cetera that you might have to apply for if you're trying to do everything from one location. So can you have local resources on hand under an MSA or whatever that are, are ready to step in the moment that you need them and can be you know up and running very quickly? One of those uh, that springs to mind for me as well is more and more investigations these days, you're looking at um, digital forensics. And so can you have, again, organisations set up that you know are to hand that can manage that for you um, in the moment that you get a report and, and you know, maybe it's not the day of the report but within a couple of days you're going to have a mobile phone you're going to have a laptop it needs to be handled 
in a very specific way in order to maintain your evidence and also for any potential legal action that follows. So you know, having already vetted and, and appointed a forensics analysis uh, firm can really help to um, remove or at least limit the, um, the worry that comes with having to do that at short notice. Uh, and, and linked to that, and I think something that's more and more important these days is understanding what the laws are in the market or the country that you're actually going to be um, operating in, or the markets if it's across several, because um, that can impact on what you can do, um, what um, consents you might need, uh, what approvals you might need. Um, just to talk to people in some countries requires you to go through works councils, for example, or even through a court and get authority and approval to send a formal invitation that has to be signed in ink, which was quite tricky uh, during the pandemic lockdown. Um, so I, I think having a good idea of your, your key risk markets, um, the countries that you're operating in, and knowing those basic employment law um, constraints is really important to help run a smooth investigation. Great. So I get the message that, you know, failed to prepare, prepare to fail, I suppose, to summarise. What you can do before something lands in your inbox on a Friday afternoon um, helps you then when it does take friday afternoon off and delegate it to someone in your team <laughs> let's hope they're not listening yeah, i was going to say questionable <laughs> practice there stephanie but um I, I, what i want to know though is you've done all that preparation something hit, is still hitting your inbox how do you then what should be in a specific uh, investigation plan so i think just before you get to the investigation plan itself um i think the first thing to do is to think critically about what it is you're dealing with now that obviously depends on how much information the reporter provides. But people don't know the same language that we know when it comes to investigations. People use words like bribe, extortion, theft to describe different things. So they may say there's a bribery issue in this country, but it's not. It might be a fraud. It might be a theft. Um, so it's really important to critically, critically assess what it is that you're actually going to be um, investigating because that's going to inform what you do next, who you involve and when. And on that avenue, Jim, from, from my perspective, when you do that initial assessment, there are also very well two two angles you probably need to consider. First of all, have an agreed uh, spectrum of how you classify reports, right? Whether it's a compliance query, whether it's an incident, so something that potentially policy breach, but not material to warrant the investigation because there is no material risk to the company, or whether it is an, an investigation that needs to be managed internally, or whether it is a nature of an allegation where we actually need to call an external law firm and forensics and and it potentially becomes a big deal, right? And, or the police. And, <laughs> or the police, yes. And having the agreed set of criteria for that at the beginning and sort of classifying your report into one of those buckets would, would tremendously help with planning. And going back to the police comment stuff, and I think another aspect to understand, people use hotline to report all sorts of things, not necessarily compliance. In, in my experience, I've actually seen majority of HR cases being reported around sexual harassment, around bullying, which actually are not compliance area of expertise. And you probably need to call HR colleague immediately after that and, and let them deal with that in line with HR processes. There are things reported regarding accounting fraud, which probably needs to go to audit and things like that. And having that uh, initial triage pattern established will, will help you tremendously not to, not to start panicking. 
Yeah, and I think to that point as well, there, there's probably always going to be some standard people that need to be informed. Again, once you've worked out maybe your materiality threshold or whatever, they don't necessarily need to be informed of everything. But if you hit a certain level, you know, there's always got to be a question again about at what point does the, for example, the general counsel of the company need to be informed? Is there a legal privilege issue, which I'm not remotely qualified to talk about when that applies and when it doesn't. But, you know, it's something that we've got to consider. So there is going to be certain topics where automatically that notification needs to happen, you know, both to other functions who have expertise, but also then to, to the general counsel. So having that agreed up front, who's responsible for which type of issue and who, to your point, Jim, I think you said at the beginning, a racy um, race is really important so that when it happens, you're not having to think on the hoof you have a, a, a plan to follow um, of, of who to inform. And then that also then those people will help you to build the investigation plan. And then just last thing, I think, on this uh, initial um, phase is to use an investigation planning template that you've already created. And I think this links to the checklist, Stephanie, that you were talking about. But when you're tired from a long week, the last thing you want to be doing is trying to work out what you need to do. So having a, a, a well-structured template will take you through all the steps you need to think about. It will make sure you don't forget anything. Um, and it will help you actually plan for a much more effective investigation um, in the long run because you will know where you're going to get your information from, who you're going to talk to, who you're going to involve. And, and just again, piggyback on that, Jim, once, once that document is prepared, make sure you socialize it with other functions and stakeholders, right? So, so finance knows exactly what kind of requests or what kind of data you may potentially need and why, right? And, and why it is sensitive. So you, you have that through the conversation, a workshop or, or whatever makes sense, but then it creates that smooth transition uh, should things happen, right? And if you are in a, in a type of, of the organization where you have an incident report every other Friday, right, that becomes a routine, but uh, sometimes you just need to, to refresh the, that uh, context with your stakeholders so it is still on their radar. And I think whilst the example that you gave us, you know, involves somebody using the hotline or whatever, is also recognizing that you need a mechanism for that same escalation and triage when something comes from another source as they often do and I think a, a key point to that also then is um, responsibility from a maybe a, a corporate HQ perspective versus a, a local affiliate perspective so I think there's got to be absolute clarity when something happens in a market and they are the first to learn about it what things are they um, sort of empowered to handle locally and, and manage locally and what things need to be with the HQ input or handled by HQ. And so some of that might be, for example, if you're talking about fraud, maybe you have a, a number threshold at which that's you know, handled locally versus handled centrally. Or you may say anything fraud-related has to go to the HQ. So I think the owning functions would need to decide what level of empowerment do the local affiliates have in order to, to manage those things themselves, maybe, and then just informing the HQ versus what has to be directly managed centrally. And I think you've covered some of these points, but to get almost a more granular detail on what a template or checklist may include, I think you've mentioned things around, you know, the geography, what kind of uh, licenses you may need to be able to conduct the interview or, or investigation. But tell me some other very practical, granular things that may be in the template or the checklist. So I can run through a couple that I would expect to see. Um, so ordinarily, I would expect to see the report itself. Um, i.e. What, what has been reported word for word um, 
And then a separate section, which is our analysis of that, setting out the issues that are actually to be investigated, because they could be different. There may be more. Um, the people who are alleged to be involved, what their roles are, um, the factual questions that we want to answer um, when assessing the validity of the concerns, um, your sources of information. I think this is a really key one. So right at the very start, identifying what information do you need and where are you going to get it from? And how much of it do you want? And what are the constraints? Um, that's going to help from a data privacy perspective. It's going to help prevent mission creep. So that can actually lead to longer protracted investigations or um, just wasted time sent, uh, spent sifting through things you just don't need. Um, you need to identify the, the stakeholders. This is particularly important if the um, matter becomes um, privileged um, so that we know what the circle looks like in terms of those who are aware. Um, legal counsel, if appropriate, um, and then obviously the people. Um, so that will be your witnesses, who you're going to talk to initially, uh, and then your subjects. So those are the things that I would expect to see at a bare minimum. I think Jim just outlined what, what I have in my in my investigation assessment sheet. But <laughs> while while it, it sounds complex, right, in reality it's a one-pager, right? You can fit most of that information into one-page A4 uh, when, it's, when it's complete because that, is the your cover sheet so to say that should give you a, a picture what what are the essential actions and where where to take it from here yeah i think the only yeah the only other thing i would kind of add to that is is calling out any limitations or, yep. or assumptions that you might need to make mm -hmm. so you know there sometimes claims come in and you think there is absolutely no way on this planet that we're going to be able to prove or disprove that <laughs> so i think recognizing that that you know, some things are not possible and, and being upfront about that, it will not be possible for us to do this because, or, you know, we cannot access this because. And at least then if everybody's on the same page from the beginning, that there may be some aspect that you, you're never going to be able to, to drill down into and then recognise, you know, that you might just have to live with some of that or, or find a less um, appealing way to, to, to investigate it. Um. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, that's particularly relevant for things that take place off record. So let's just think bribery, for example. Generally, people don't log that in their workbooks or, or, or in any comp company documentation that, oh, I paid this bribe to this person today. Um, so that that's a difficult one to, 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 to actually prove. Um, but we, we aren't the police. We aren't courts. We don't necessarily need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Our threshold can be lower. And we can also take into consideration a lot of the circumstantial evidence. So that's why it's important to really assess all the different sources of information. What would you expect to see? What would be normal? Where would that sit? And then get that information to see whether or not all of those things are there because the absence of information can actually demonstrate that something took place. But also, just a last comment from my end here. Uh, when you make that initial assessment, also give a, a bit of a benefit of a doubt to the person reporting but also give a bit of a challenge to this report. Absolutely. Because there have been quite a few incidents, I'm sure everyone can relate, where hotline is used to throw them mud, right? People are not happy, they want to. They are not competitive against their colleagues, and they start creating bogus claims that actually take a lot of time to investigate and assess, but in, at the end of the day, they, they have been made up, right? I'm not saying that's that's the the way to approach the investigation, but I think when you make the initial assessment and you build you build a plan, you also need to have an element how to verify that the complaint is actually genuine and credible, because it may be the case that if at early stages you will be establish you will be able to establish that there is nothing to investigate, or to Stephanie's point, you can't prove one way or another, 
you need to find another way to deal with this incident and this report uh, than spending time on calling the forensics and instructing external counsel. And, to, and, and talking about time and how long these things can take, should we set time limits for investigations? You know, is justice delayed, justice denied? Yes. Though we're not caught. <laughs> in my, in, so tell me about it. In my ideal world, the investigation assessment report has to be completed within 24 hours. If, if I were managing the, the investigation function. The, the actual investigation, you set up uh, reasonable... I think you got us all worried there, yeah. Andre, because we were thinking, <laughs> you, you mean the initial kind of assessment? Yes. Okay. Right. And then depending... Even when it happens on a Friday afternoon. Uh, yeah, that's why you have all the preparation done, right? And one uh, working day, maybe, rather right. than... Right, okay, yeah. let's go with that. And then depending on the type of how you classify it, whether, again, it's an inquiry or an incident or actual investigation, you need to agree what is the reasonable timeline you want want to hold yourself accountable as the function to make sure you can then demonstrate that you work effectively and efficiently. And, and maybe something within that, you can't always predict how long the investigation is going to take, but I think what you can say is we'll have check-in points. So we think our initial assessment, you know, say it's going to take us two weeks. At two weeks, we will regroup, we will come back, we will have a look, we will talk to whoever the relevant stakeholders are that need to be consulted and informed, and then we will look to see what happens next. So it's not like you go away and it goes into big black box and you don't know how long it's going to take. There will be regular kind of check-in points because some investigations could be done in a week or two. Others may take months. So you know, having that um, clarity um, and, and regular touch points, I think, is important. Couldn't agree more. And I think at those stages as well, you keep your, your plan under constant review as well, your investigation plan. That's a living document. But coming back to time limits, I think there's a couple of really important things here. So my answer would be yes and no. Yes. In two circumstances. So yes, KPIs help to drive the investigation program overall and they do help to ensure that people who are under investigation um, don't su suffer unnecessary stress and burdens when they become aware that they are the subject of investigation. And also, in some markets, there's time constraints imposed by the law. So employment laws specify that you must respond within X period of time. France is one example where once you become aware as an organisation of misconduct, you have a certain time period in which you can respond to that and issue any disciplinary action. When you become aware is, again, you need your legal advice on what that means. Um, but no, they're not always helpful, arbitrary time frames anyway, because actually they can negatively impact the completeness of the investigation. Um, and I'm sure we've all experienced that. <laughs> you end up doing an investigation to a timeline because the timeline's there, and there's still unanswered questions. So you go, you present your findings, and then you're told, go away and do more work. Had you done it properly, it would have taken less time in the first place. So I can, there are yeses in the time frames, but there's also the no. Um, and I think it's important that you assess each case on its own merit and determine whether or not a time limit is necessary. Perhaps setting milestones is a more um, beneficial way of doing that. That's fantastic. Thank you all for your contribution to this important tangly topic. And I think certainly we've seen how you need to prepare before that grenade lands in your inbox. Some great tips and practical uh, help there on what should be in a checklist and what things to look out for. And finally, making sure you set yourself some kind of uh, targets for timelines so that you're being uh, honest and, and, being, and, be, and making sure you're driving the investigation forward so that's great thank you so much and thank you dear listener for listening we hope you'll, you'll join us next time uh, on this untangled podcast <laughs>